Blog Talk Radio. The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free book by John called Good News, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It expounds on the central message of Christianity, that Jesus Christ lived and died to save sinners. Request your free book by writing to goodnews at gty.org. That's goodnews at gty.org. And this offer is good in North America and Europe through December 2020. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. I had the marvelous privilege this week to spend a few hours with some of the faithful brothers in our church. Some of them uh, 
who have uh, come to the seminary and others who are part of our church congregation. These are young black men that uh, gave up a chunk of their time to uh, sit with me and talk through some of these issues. Thanks to Carl Hargrove for kind of leading that discussion, which was powerfully fruitful for me. I have been talking the last couple of weeks from the Word of God, as I always do, to try to help people understand what is going on in our world from a biblical perspective. That falls to me to to be the spokesman for the Lord, and that is a humbling responsibility that I obviously don't take lightly. James says, stop being so many teachers, for theirs is a greater condemnation. Not wanting to fall into condemnation and uh, having used my mouth for so many years ostensibly to speak for God, I have come to understand the seriousness of this accountability. And so I have endeavored the last couple of weeks to give you a biblical perspective on the issues that we face in all that's going on in the social discontent and distress that is happening in our country. But today, coming out of that meeting, I, I want to let you know that it's time for us to move from the theology to the application. We have people in this nation who uh, feel profoundly disenfranchised, wounded, in many ways cheated. And we can talk to them about truth and reality, and we can talk about the Bible, and we can talk about statistics and all of that, but sooner or later, that conversation leads to the fact that we have been called to give them the gospel, right? This is why we are here, to give the gospel. So the question that we discussed was, how do we approach people with the gospel? Now, last Sunday morning, we ended the message by saying our calling is to present the gospel. We are ambassadors for Christ, begging people to be reconciled to God through Christ. How do we open that door? Because that is our calling. It's not enough to stand and analyze something. It is only legitimate to do that if that becomes the foundation on which we act. So I said to these men after about two hours plus of talking together, and it was a very gracious and loving communication, I said, so give me five things that we need to do as believers in Jesus Christ to reach across racial lines and bring the gospel to these people and have it received. So I said, you get five shots, and I'll have this as the introduction to my sermon. So here we go. This is what they said to me. Number one, Tell people that racism is a sin. Racism is a sin, isn't it? Any kind of hate is a sin. And racism is an utterly irrational hate. Racism is what causes genocide 
what caused the Holocaust, what causes ethnic battles all across the planet as long as there's been human history. But then men in their natural state hate God, and the Bible says they hate each other. The first crime was a murder based upon anger, based upon hate, when Cain killed his brother. Any kind of hate is a sin. Any kind of racial hate is an irrational, expanded form of hate. Coming from any human heart, it is reflective of the fallenness of that heart. And we also know in our society that there are some people who have received more of that than others. We need to make it very clear that to hate anyone on any basis or any group of people is a sin against God of monumental proportions. Secondly, we need to show compassion. Compassion to those who have experienced this. And lots of people have. We need to open our hearts and weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. Jesus looked at the multitudes and had compassion. Even when He went to the grave of Lazarus, He wept. And He knew He was going to raise Him from the dead, and He still wept. That's the heart of Jesus. Life is hard, and it has been especially hard for some groups of people. And that certainly speaks to the issue of the history of black people in America. For those of us who know and love the, the Lord Jesus Christ, they don't want to hear the statistics, but they would love to know you have compassion for them. Thirdly, we talked about the fact that we need to listen. And that that's pretty much a basic principle, isn't it? Slow to speak and quick to hear. Um... We may have all the theological answers. We may have all the statistical answers. But can we keep our mouths closed long enough to hear the heart of someone else? Engaging someone with the gospel is so much more effective if uh, that comes in the context of having heard their heart. Number four, they said, use these days as an opportunity to show the love of Christ. This was really rich advice for me. Say racism is a sin, and it is. Any kind of hate coming from anybody in any direction, and you can see that it is tearing this culture to shreds. Show compassion. Listen and use these opportunities as an occasion to show love. That's four. We've got one more. And the final one was this. The only thing that's going to break the cycle of our problems in this country is godly fathers. Help us develop godly fathers. Now, you might say that was the providence of God that it happened the week of Father's Day, 
sure set me up for this morning because I want to talk about fathers. Here's the current reality. 25 million children in our country live without a biological father. One out of three. Grades 1 to 12... 40% of children live without a biological father in the home. Over 50% currently of children are born outside marriage. 85% of prisoners grew up in a fatherless home. 85% of children with behavioral disorders came from fatherless homes. 90% of youth who run away and become homeless come from fatherless homes. Children from fatherless homes are 300% more likely to deal drugs and carry weapons. This is a holocaust. And it's not limited to any group of ethnic people. It is a national Holocaust. The statistics I gave you are across the board for our country. Just that one statistic, 85% of prisoners grew up in a fatherless home, is a terrifying reality. I used to hear when I was a kid that um, if you had a good mother, you could have any old stick for a dad. That's not true. I used to hear, when I was a kid, preachers say, you men, it's important how you live, you Christian men, because your children will get their view of God from you. That's ridiculous. They don't get their view of God from me. They get their view of God from the Bible. That's an insult to God. What they do get from me is their view of a man. Children will get their view of a man and what a man is from the Father. Sexual immorality, relentless assault of Feminism, overexposure to perversion, complete collapse of homes has just produced generations of bad fathers. And the reality is nothing is more devastating to a society than that, nothing. And on the other hand, the only hope for stability and the only hope for sanity The only hope for peace in a society is masculine, virtuous men. Evil abounds absolutely everywhere. How men respond to its presence determines the survival and well-being of a society. Let me say that again. Evil abounds everywhere. How men respond to its presence 
determines the survival and well-being of that society. One psychologist said, masculinity is taking responsibility to reduce evil and produce good. No culture will ever rise above the character of its men, its fathers. The feminist lie has been that patriarchy is, is bad, it is tyrannical, it is toxic. It needs to be destroyed. And they've been doing it for decades. To destroy masculinity, to destroy strong male leadership and character leads to the current disaster. Irresponsible men running loose in the streets, terrorizing a society. Weak men have given us this legacy. Weak men produce the death of society. And men are in a crisis today. They are being continually told to try to get in touch with their feminine side. So they have become defensive about their masculinity. Women rise higher and higher and higher and more frequently into positions of leadership as men feel overwhelmed and overpowered and unable to fight against the trend. Oh, there are lots of men at the gym, pretty buff, they have some muscles, but they're doing virtually nothing to stop the tide of evil in the world. And by the way, in case women haven't begun to realize it, weak, immoral men abuse women. And they produce more weak, immoral sons. No, children don't get their view of God from their father, but they do get their view of what a man is. And we are in some serious trouble because the current crop of men are infecting the children. Listen to the Word of God. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Listen to Exodus 34, 7. God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. God says it again in Deuteronomy 5, 9 and 10. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Repeatedly, God says, corrupt fathers create in society a legacy of corruption that is generational. He's not saying that a son would be punished for a father's sin. Clearly, that is not the case. Deuteronomy 24.16 says, 
fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone will be put to death for his own sin. We're not talking about an individual suffering punishment for another person's sin. What we are saying is fathers, plural, who are corrupt, leave a legacy that will not be overturned in three or four generations. And if the next generation is corrupt, it pushes that out another three or four, and the next generation another three or four, and it becomes an impossible cycle. In the words of the prophet Zechariah, as he begins his prophecy in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers. Something has to break the cycle. Clearly a generation dominated by sinful fathers will bear the crushing consequence of their sinful progenitors. Their children will suffer. Their grandchildren will suffer. Their great-grandchildren will suffer. No generation exists in isolation or as an island. A wicked society, defined as wicked by the behavior of the men, won't be rooted out for multiple generations. So, it isn't that people get their view of God from a father, but they do get their view of what a father is. And if it's the wrong view, it just purposely repeated again and again and again. How can we break the cycle of this generational iniquitous masculinity? We can begin by understanding that this is natural to the human heart. The default position of every man is corruption, right? It's the most natural thing they do is sin. The most accessible effect of that sin is on the women in their lives and then on the children in their lives. And then it extends to everybody else. The problem is, there's none righteous, no, not one. They're all evil, as we read in Romans 3. They don't seek after God. They hate God. They hate others. And they're influencing their children while they're harming their wives. I understand why there's a woman's movement. And even though it's wrong and totally devastates the society, pushes women into places they were never intended to be and men out of the places they were intended to be, I understand it because of the corruption of men. So where do we begin? We have to begin as believers who have new natures, right? We are new creations. In Christ we have the Holy Spirit. And we start by breaking the cycle. 
It's not going to be broken. Look, it's still around, right? What you're seeing today in the chaos of this culture, what you see in the weakness and foolishness of people in high places, what you see is just the reality that corrupt fathers destroy society. We talk about abortions. Abortions are another result of corrupt men. We can start as believers by understanding the most basic fundamental virtue, the core virtue of manliness. The word I like to use is fortitude. Mark it down in your mind. You don't need to write it down. I'm going to say it enough you won't forget it. Fortitude. What is fortitude? It's a great word. Firmness, strength of soul that faces danger with courage and bears loss and pain without complaint. Fortitude. Firmness and strength of soul that faces danger with courage and bears loss and pain without complaint. That's not a theological definition. That's just the definition of the Word. When you say a man has fortitude, you're talking about someone who doesn't compromise. Even when there's danger, even when that danger escalates to, to fear and pain, fortitude is a combination of conviction, courage, and endurance. Conviction, courage, and endurance. It is the willingness. It is not just the willingness. I would say it's even the desire to risk, to literally create challenges if they're not already there, to attack difficulty, to challenge difficulty head on, to bear suffering with courage. This is what makes a man a man. And this is the kind of man in whom a woman finds her security, finds her protection. And in that kind of relationship, the woman's femininity flourishes. Men are those who should be the protectors, the purifiers, who secure their wives, who secure their children, who accomplish all that needs to be done to reduce evil in a society and produce good. And yet this society for years and decades has had men busy producing evil and diminishing good. True manliness is bound up in the word courage. That is the virtue that marks a real man. Truth, conviction, courage. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. At the end of this wonderful letter, near the end, is tucked a very important verse, actually two verses, verses 13 and 14. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Be on the alert. 
Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Be on the alert. Dangers everywhere. Stand firm in the faith. Don't waver in your belief and convictions. Act like men. What does that mean? Fortitude, uncompromising courage, be strong. The New King James actually says, be brave, be strong. Act like men essentially means to conduct oneself in a courageous way. To conduct oneself in a courageous way. Courage is the stock and trade of a man. Courage in the face of danger. Courage in the face of temptation. Courage in the face of loss. Courage in the face of suffering. The strength of verse 13. Essentially, four statements saying one way or another, be strong, is then balanced in verse 14 by let all that you do be done in love. And how important is it to add that? There's nothing more manly than a man with consummate conviction, courage, and endurance who is marked by love. That's a man. Not weak. Not vacillating. Not fearful and loving. Real men face life with this kind of fortitude. They're watchful of the dangers around them. They're alert. They're protectors of their wives and children and of their friends and all the people over whom they have influence. They have convictions about what is true. They have courage to live out those convictions and the strength to be unwavering when those convictions will cost them everything. Your convictions are only real convictions if they hold up under the most intense pressure. How important was this? Let me, let me take you back to the book of Deuteronomy. We'll do a little exercise together in looking at this idea of strength, fortitude. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses is uh, passing the mantle on to Joshua. And in verse 6, Deuteronomy 31, he says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, meaning your enemies. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. 
For you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. That's the greatest transitional leadership speech ever. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 10. I'm sorry, 2 Samuel. I knew there was something wrong about that. 2 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 12. This is Joab to the Israelites who are facing opposition, strong opposition, tremendously strong opposition. Back in verse 6, it lays out the forces that were coming against them. But in verse 12, Joab says to the Israelites, Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in His sight. 1 Kings chapter 2. In 1 Kings chapter 2, David addresses Solomon, his son. David's time to die drew near. He charged Solomon, his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong. Therefore, show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, and His testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out His promise which He spoke. Moses to Joshua, Joab to the Israelites, David to Solomon. For another view of David's speech to his son Solomon. Look at 1 Chronicles chapter 22. I'm showing you these because I want you to see how common this is. 1 Chronicles 22. David calls for his son to build the house of God. And we can pick it up in verse 11. Now, my son, the Lord be with you that you may be successful and build the house of the Lord your God just as He has spoken concerning you. Only the Lord give you discretion and understanding and give you charge over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you're careful to observe the statutes and ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be dismayed. All of these declarations assume that your devotion to God is going to be tested and you're going to have to be strong. It's going to be tested. No way around it. David says again, 1 Chronicles 28.20, to his son Solomon. He gives this speech another time. Be strong and courageous and act do not fear nor be dismayed, 
For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. Just a couple more. Toward the end of Second Chronicles, Hezekiah is speaking to men in positions of leadership. Hezekiah, chapter 32 of uh, Second Chronicles, the first verse, after these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib king of Assyria came, invaded Judah, besieged the fortified cities, and thought to break into them for himself. Hezekiah saw that uh, Sennacherib had come invading Judah. He intended to make war on Jerusalem. He decided with his officers and warriors to cut off the supply of water from the springs. This was a siege which were outside the city, and they helped him. So many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and streams which flowed through the region, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? And he took courage and rebuilt all the wall that had been broken down and erected towers on it, built another outside wall, strengthened the millow in the city of David, made weapons and shields in great number, appointed military officers over the people, and gathered them in the square of the city gate and spoke encouragingly to them. And this is what he said, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him, for the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. That's a great pep talk, isn't it? For an army. Psalm 27:14 says, Be strong and let your heart take courage. Men don't give in to fear. Men don't give in to pressure. Men don't give in to intimidation. And they don't give in to temptation. They don't seek the easy way. They will take the pain. They will invite the risk. They will confront the challenge. And they will not bow to the pressure to compromise the commandments of God. The strength of a man is that he lives on principle, that he lives on conviction, that he has the courage of those convictions, stands strong against everything that comes at those convictions, bravely faces the challenges in a fortified way. Manly fortitude means contending with difficulty, facing every enemy meeting the enemy head-on, bearing the pain, maintaining self-discipline, upholding truth, pressing on to the goal. That's what defines a man. I want to show you another passage back in Joshua, right at the beginning of Joshua. Moses gives this speech again as he passes the baton, as it were, to Joshua. He says to him in chapter 1 of Joshua, verse 5, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. This is God now speaking. God is the one speaking. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. So here it comes not from Moses to Joshua, but from God to Joshua in the presence of Moses. And here's what God says to Joshua. Verse 6, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. 
Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. And here comes the key to that. How do you live like that? How do you live with that strength and courage? How do you live without ever compromising? Verse 8, This book of the law, the Word of God, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you... Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. It's an incredible speech from God. Be strong. Verse 5, because God will be with you. Verse 6, because you're fulfilling a divine cause, a promise from God. Verses 7 and 8, the only way you can do this is to submit to the Word of God so that it constantly is in your mind and you live out its truths. You will be able to be obedient if you're saturated by the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. Can you see why this speech is repeated so many, many times. This is the mark of a man. It takes a father like that to raise a son like that. Spiritual men are courageous, strong, principled, uncompromising, and bold. This is God's role for men to play in a society but it is also God's role for the men to play who were the leaders of His people Israel. And this is God's standard for the men who lead His church. When we come into the New Testament and we are introduced to the kind of men that the Lord commands to lead His church, this is how He describes them in 1 Timothy 3. This man must be above reproach, a one-woman man, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man doesn't know how to manage his own children, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. High standards for a pastor, an elder. To Titus, Paul says similarly, appoint elders. If a man is above reproach, a one-woman man, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer or the shepherd, pastor, bishop must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word 
which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he'll be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. This is the kind of men who lead the church. Why is the standard so high for the leaders of the church? Because the leaders of the church have the responsibility to set the pattern for what manliness looks like in a godly environment. It's not that they alone should be like this. It is that they should be like this so the others can see what a man should be. It isn't that the Lord wants to pick up all the pastors and elders and take them to another level of spirituality which no one could attain. It is rather that this is what God expects from every man. But it's got to be modeled. Men like that and men, as Ephesians 5 said, who love their wives like Christ loved the church and who are protectors of their wives and who literally are the saviors of their wives are the kind of men who become a haven for the wife, who make her feel secure, protected, nourished, cherished. And when children grow up in a home where the man secures the woman and the children, there's peace. Sometimes you hear silly things about how fathers should connect with their children, superficial things. What you need to show your children is fortitude, spiritual fortitude, strong, courageous, secure love for the Lord and for the family. The legacy of a man to his wife and children is strength, spiritual strength and spiritual courage. Anything but cowardice means to resist the temptation to compromise biblical convictions, to resist the temptation to tolerate behaviors in others that dishonor God. That's why there's discipline in the church. There's discipline in the church so that the church can maintain the necessary reality of what men and women should be before God for the sake of the glory of God and the next generation. Being a good father is far more than spending time with your children, playing with your children, hauling them around to events. It's showing them what an uncompromising, courageous, godly life looks like. This culture has turned on God, eliminated His Word, the Bible and the Gospel is an enemy. The leaders of this nation have no interest in God or in His Word. And they are basically running this country right into hell as fast as they can. The only thing that's going to stop this is not a group of feminized men who thinks God just wants to give them what they want so they can be happy. What this world needs is not sensitive men. It needs strong men. We live in a world of compromise, more than compromise. You could barely call it compromise because there's nothing left of that which is good. So what are they compromising with? 
To add another word to your thoughts about this, I would say that people who have no price have integrity. Integrity. So we talked about fortitude. Let me talk about integrity. People who have no price have integ- integrity. What is integrity? It, it is essentially unbreakable fortitude. Integrity is defined as steadfast adherence to a moral code. It comes from integer, which means whole or complete. Its synonyms are honesty, sincerity, simplicity, incorruptibility. Its antonym is duplicity or hypocrisy. A person who lacks integrity is a hypocrite. Integrity means that you live by your convictions. You say what you believe. You hold to what you believe. You're immovable. That's wholeness. That's integrity. You are one. It was said long ago of a preacher that he preached very well, but he lived better. The world is a seducer, and Satan is a seducing deceiver, pushing us into compromise and therefore into hypocrisy. When our Lord indicted the scribes and Pharisees who were the frequent objects of His blistering attacks, inevitably it was on their integrity that He assaulted them. For example, in Matthew 23.3, He said, They say things and do not do them. When Solomon did finish building the house of the Lord, the Lord appeared to him. 1 Kings 9. I've heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me. I've consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And as for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. You be faithful to me, I'll be faithful to you. O Lord, says Psalm 15, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy hill, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. This kind of uncompromising spiritual manhood is severely lacking. We watch spiritual leaders in one form or another of collapse all the time. They abandon conviction when compromise is more beneficial. Men say they believe the Bible, yet don't faithfully preach it. Men say that sin should be punished and eliminated, but not if it's committed by their children. Men oppose dishonesty and corruption until they must confront somebody in their lives and could cost them a job. Men maintain high moral standards until their lusts are kindled by some illicit impulse. 
Men are honest until a little dishonesty will save them money. Men hold convictions until they're challenged by someone they fear or admire. Adam compromised God's law, followed his wife's sin, lost paradise. Abraham compromised the truth, lied about Sarah's relationship to him, and nearly lost his wife. Moses compromised God's command and lost the privilege of entering the Promised Land. Samson compromised his devotion as a Nazarite, lost his strength, his eyesight, and his life. Israel compromised the commands of the Lord, lived in sin, and when fighting the Philistines, lost the ark of God. Israel also compromised the law of God with sin and idolatry and lost her land. Saul compromised God's divine word by not slaying the animals of blasphemy and lost his kingdom. David compromised God's standard, committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered Uriah, and lost an infant son. Solomon compromised his convictions, married foreign wives, and lost the United Kingdom. Judas compromised his supposed devotion for Christ for 30 pieces of silver and was separated from Christ forever. A couple of observations. In every case of compromise, the compromiser thought there was something to gain. But in every case of compromise, something priceless was lost. for something temporary, unfulfilling, and sinful. What was compromised in each of these cases is either a command from God or a conviction about Him and His will. So lack of fortitude, that is the failure of men, of fathers. And they have been pounded by the feminist movement to give up leadership. And they have succumbed. They have fallen to their lusts and weakness. And you have a society of men who do not fight to produce good and to eliminate evil. How do you break that? We need a generation of men who are alert to danger, who stand firm in the faith, who are courageous with the Word of God, uncompromising and strong. And listen, everything about this that I've said indicates that it will be tested. Manliness will be tested. Conviction will be tested. Courage will be tested. Strength will be tested. The pressure will come. It will come in unexpected ways. But it will come. You may get away with your statement of conviction for years. But there will come a test. And many men will shock the people who knew them by selling out, compromising, abandoning their integrity, playing the hypocrite out of cowardice. This falls into a translation of Romans 12 too. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. 
I think about Daniel, and I want to close with this. Daniel chapter 1. And there's not much to say. It's enough really to read this passage. Daniel chapter 1. The year was 605 B.C. Northern Kingdom Israel had gone into captivity 120 years earlier. And now Judah was going to be taken captive by the Babylonians in three separate deportations, 605, 597, 586. The first deportation, the Babylonians take the leading young men. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So basically, he raided the temple and took all that was valuable and put it in the idol temples of Babylon. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, which may be a title of the one who was over all the eunuchs, or it might be a proper name, but he ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials or chief of his eunuchs, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So they now have, uh, they have an enemy people essentially brought into their nation. As fast as they can, they need to take the youngest and the brightest and the best and transform them into Babylonians so that they don't have a perpetual revolution on their hands by these alien people. So they choose the best of the young, no defect, good-looking, intelligent, wise, understanding, discerning knowledge, the kind that had what it takes to serve in the king's court, and they were to be brainwashed. Teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, which essentially was a complex system of idolatry. And then added to that intellectual training was seduction from the physical side, fleshly side. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food, and from the wine which he drank. So he basically introduced them to the best food in the whole nation, the king's food and drink, to seduce them on that level, and that they should be educated three years, a three-year program, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So this was a three-year-long, basically brainwashing effort to turn these young men into Chaldeans into Babylonians, young men, Yaladim, teenagers. These are teenagers. Now among them, verse 6, from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are those, their Hebrew names. The commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel assigned the name Belteshazzar, which has to do with the god Bel, to Hananiah, Shadrach, and to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Either the name Bel, one of their gods, was in the new name, or 
a form of Aku. So now they are educated in Babylonian culture. They are fed Babylonian food at the highest level, and their names are changed so that they would begin to kind of become comfortable with a new identity. Verse 8 is just amazing. But Daniel made up his mind he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. He didn't want to go down that path at all. He stopped before it started. And God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. The commander Ashpenaz is worried because if Daniel doesn't look good when the king takes a look at him because he hasn't been eating all this good food, he's going to lose his head. Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. Well, you know the rest of the story. At the end of the ten days, verse 15, they seemed better and fatter than all the youths had been eating the choice food. The overseer continued to withhold their choice food, and the wine they were to drink kept giving them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And you know what happened to Daniel, right? He became the prime minister the prime minister of that pagan nation. It's an amazing story about Daniel. Unlimited influence. Unlimited influence. Because he would not compromise. Verse 20 actually says, As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. Why? Because they were giving him the wisdom of God from the Scripture. Daniel continued into the first year of Cyrus the king. Seventy years. Seventy years. I had occasion a few years back to be invited to West Point Military Academy been a week there preaching in the beautiful chapel and getting to meet the leadership and the chaplain at West Point, the lead chaplain is a graduate of the Master Seminary. It was a wonderful opportunity to speak to the leaders of the academy as well as the cadets. I was there on Bible Sunday. That was amazing. Every year on one Sunday, every cadet is presented with a copy of the Scriptures, has their name on a little silver plate on the front. That particular Sunday is given to the honoring of the Word of God. It was an amazing thing. The chapel is a spectacular place. It was packed with all the cadets. And a parade begins, and they come in essentially uniforms that are kind of a replica of some 
of the older uniforms from back a hundred years or so. They march down the middle aisle. Beautiful organ is playing. And there's one of the cadets holding a Bible. Comes all the way to the front and places the Bible down on the desk in the front of the chapel. It was my wonderful privilege on that Sunday to preach on the authority and power of the Word of God to those cadets. Really a, a great experience for me. And to know that Christ is um, being proclaimed there through one of our graduates and others who know and love the Lord was also encouraging. There's an effort, even in that place, to make those men and the few women who are there everything they should be. Every Sunday, it used to be at West Point, that in the chapel services, all the cadets would, would say this, make us choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong. Never be content with half-truth when whole truth can be won. Endow us with courage that is born of loyalty to all that is noble and worthy, that scorns to compromise with vice and injustice and knows no fear when right and truth are in jeopardy. For years, every Sunday, they said that. They said that for the sake of the United States. We need a generation of men who will say that and much more for the sake of Christ. If they can do it for love of country, what can we do for love of Christ? Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for its power, its truth. We thank You that it lives. It is a living book. It gives life. And we pray, Lord, that it would quicken the hearts of some who are dead even today, dead in trespasses and sins, and need life, need to be rescued and delivered from sin and death and judgment and hell. May they put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the man of all men, the one who lived perfectly righteous, virtuous, every second of His life. The One who never compromised the truth. The One who is the model of strength and at the same time, love. Raise up a generation of strong and godly and courageous men who follow Christ. This is the only hope. And as we said at the beginning, give us opportunity to demonstrate our hatred of sin, our compassion, our willingness to listen. May we use all the opportunities that confront us in these trying times as an opportunity to express genuine love. Strength, courage, love. And we would pray, Lord, that You would be gracious to raise up in the church, true church, godly men.
who act like men, are strong and loving. Protect your church and your people through those men. That's our prayer. We thank you that you have not only called us as men to this, but you have enabled us to be the kind of men we ought to be because you have placed your Holy Spirit within us. We, in His strength, are strengthened with all might and all power to live as you have called us to live. May that testimony be shining light in the darkness of this world. We pray that you would do a gracious work of saving men, fathers, sons, for the sake of this generation and the ones to come. We love you. We thank you again for calling us to yourself. We are so overwhelmed by your grace and the privileges that are ours, of which we are and always will be unworthy. Thank you for graciously making us your sons and daughters. May we be faithful to represent you in the world, we pray, all for your glory. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website at gty.org. And for details about the Master's University, where John serves as Chancellor, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, stand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? Surprise, I'm back in your section With Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection More power than gravity His knowledge and strategies confound the academy Bow to his majesty He paid sin's salary, took up blame on Calvary Those who love his name spread his fame as the policy All eyes on the matchless price of his sacrifice That's prize, I'm after Christ and rise in the afterlife What, did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a ride or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes Who hate truth, the gospel it's not fake news Our debt is sin The gospel sweeter than it's ever been Ain't nothing changed Let us in We got the medicine It's still human emergency The serpent attack You think Jesus can't save? That's alternative facts Stand up, stand up If you truly love the Son of Man Trust, Jesus is alive And his people he'll revive And his fame is gonna spread across the land What's up? Stand up, stand up Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust, Jesus is the King So it's to 
rhythm of composition. Lots of rhythm, but not tradition, no kind of different. But God's consistent, no contradiction, my proposition. Through crucifixion, he mocked and crippled his opposition. It's not some fiction, I'm spitting, the son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison. And through the spirit, he brings the new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip-hop is missing. The proposition, it's my suspicion, we drop the mission. Not to this, but the word of God, is it not sufficient? The doctrine is that the gospel fixes our shot condition. God the spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness that God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again, he came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again, nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the, the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how are we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus? When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever stay worthy is the land. What's up? A gap in Genesis? This is Ken Ham, editor of the popular series of books, The Answers Books for Kids. In the 19th century, some Christian leaders suggested Genesis chapter 1 has a gap between verses 1 and 2. Why? Well, it was an attempt to fit long ages into the Bible. Since these leaders had accepted this new idea, they believed they had to fit long time spans into the Bible somehow. So the idea didn't come from the Bible itself. It was from outside the Bible. Sadly, God's clear word was reinterpreted because of man's ideas. Christians still do this today, whether it's the gap theory or the idea Genesis is just poetry, or claiming the days in Genesis were millions of years. These are attempts to fit man's idea into God's word. God's the authority. Discover more about Genesis and the age of the earth when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com and find hundreds of resources to encourage your faith at AnswersRadio.com.
Death Before Sin? This is Ken Ham, and our popular Ark Encounter attraction is located in Northern Kentucky. Some Christians believe there's a gap of time between the first two verses of Genesis. Now in this gap, they insert millions of years. And this idea has a lot of problems, and here's a huge one. It puts death before sin. Think about it. If the fossil record is millions of years old, then death has always been around. All the attempts to fit millions of years into scripture have this same problem. Really, they're undermining the gospel message. Instead of death being the penalty for sin, it's just something that was part of God's very good creation. But that's not in scripture. Death is the penalty for sin, an intruder into God's perfect creation. Plan your visit to the Ark Encounter at AnswersRadio.com. Enjoy Kids Free for 2020. Get all the details and discover more about the truth of God's Word at AnswersRadio.com.
No need to add millions of years. This is Ken Ham, CEO of Answers in Genesis and the Popular Creation Museum. Many Christians try to add millions of years into Scripture, but there's absolutely no reason to do this. You see, the observational science doesn't require millions of years. Many Christians have never looked into it themselves. They just believe what they've heard. But there are two kinds of science. One is observational science. It builds technology and medical advances. The other is historical science, which deals with the past. What you already believe determines how you interpret the evidence. So creation versus evolution isn't a battle over the evidence. It's over interpretations. But with God's word, the evidence always confirms the Bible. There's so much more to discover when you visit our award-winning website at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped and encouraged when you go to AnswersRadio.com. says to you, if you are in Christ, I've got you. There it is. One pithy sentence that will help you. God tells you, promises you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Everything that I am doing in your life is for your good. Please note, Romans 8 isn't saying eventually there will be a good outcome. He's saying what I'm doing in your life, as hard as it might be, it is for your good. In other words, God says to you, I've got you. Why are you troubled, O you of little faith? Again, another verse, Jesus is reminding us that every bout of depression is a question about God. Am I trusting him or not? Here is his promise to you. If you are in Christ, he has got you. You don't need to freak out. You don't need to panic. It doesn't mean that you don't need to prepare. It doesn't mean that you don't need to deal with stuff. But it does mean you don't need to be stressed out. Every single bout of depression, no matter what motivates it, is a question about God. What are you believing about him and his promises in the moment? And when you simply remember God promises you, I've got you, you don't have to be afraid. Bayless, please have... That was from Betches, and you can get that on YouTube. Um, This one says, this one sentence will help you kill your anxiety. And it's on their YouTube page. And they also have Betches.org, which is their website, which has their podcast and then a TV show. It's W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D.org, Betches.org. And now, this is a, a very moving evangelist encounter. I know you want it. This is Kevin. As you'll see, he was kind of apathetic and unresponsive until later on in the interview when I asked him a very probing question, and he answered it honestly, and my heart went out to him. And so what keeps me going in this situation is I always imagine Saul of Tarsus as the Apostle Paul. In my mind's eye, I saw Kevin as a Christian, filled with gratitude to God for saving him from death. Please pray for Kevin that he'll find a place of biblical repentance. 
you think there's an afterlife, Kevin? Uh, yeah. You do? What sort? I think there's a heaven and a hell. Mm. I don't know what to believe sometimes. You're confused about the issue? Yeah. Would you like to get it straight? Yeah. Well, let me tell you, there is an afterlife. And we know this because the Bible tells us there's an afterlife. Do you believe in God's existence? Yeah. Do you believe the Bible's the word of God? Yeah. Okay, this is what it says. It's appointed a man once to die, and after this, the judgment. So when you die, you've got to stand before God in judgment. So how are you going to do on judgment day? Are you a good person? For the most part. Some part you're not? Yeah. You break the commandments? So you've lied and stolen? Yeah, I have. Okay, have you ever used God's name in vain? Yeah, I have. It's called blasphemy, using God's name as a cuss word. Kevin, this is the one that showed me I needed God's forgiveness. Jesus said, whoever looks upon a woman to lust for her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Of course. Have you had sex before marriage? Yes. So, Kevin, I'm not judging you, but here's a little summation for your judgment day trial. You've just told me you're a lying, thieving, blasphemous, fornicating adulterer at heart. So if God judges you by the Ten Commandments, we'll look at four of them, on judgment day you're going to be innocent or guilty. Sounds pretty guilty, huh? Heaven or hell? Hell. <laughs> Does that concern you? If you died today, you'd end up in hell? No. You don't mind pain and suffering? You don't want to go to hell? You crazy? You don't get out in the morning and go out to your car and slam your thumb in the car door? That's not a good feeling. And the Bible says hell is a place of terrible pain and suffering and no way out. You won't have a hope in hell, so... And I'm horrified for you if God gave you justice. You've seen all your secret sins and you're stored up as wrath. It doesn't concern you at all? Not at the moment. It... Well, it will when it happens if you die in your sins, so you've got to think ahead. You ever plan ahead with your life? No. So you'd never put on a parachute if you had to jump out of a plane? You just wouldn't plan ahead? You plan ahead because you've got to face gravity. Stephen Hawking called gravity a law. And it's a law if you violate, you suffer the consequences. Face first, 120 miles an hour onto the ground. You don't want to do that. You put on a parachute and you hit the ground at about 10 miles an hour and land on your feet. Parachute saves you. And God's provided a savior so you could be saved on judgment day. Do you know that Jesus died for the sin of the world? Have you ever heard that? Yeah. Well, let me explain it in a way that may give you more understanding. The Ten Commandments are called the Moral Law, L-A-W. You and I broke the law. Jesus paid the fine. It's as simple as that. That's why he cried out on the cross, it is finished. In other words, the debt has been paid. If you're in court and someone pays the fine, even though you're guilty, the judge can legally let you go. He can say, Kevin's guilty, but someone's paid his fine. He's out of here. Well, God can dismiss your case, forgive your sins, commute your death sentence, let you live forever legally, all because of the suffering, death, and resurrection of the Savior. What you have to do is repent and trust in him. Do you ever get suicidal thoughts? Yeah. Does that scare you? Yeah, it does. Death is going to snatch everything you love from you, and... It already has. So we have an epidemic of suicide in this nation. So what you need is to put your hope in the Savior. Let me see if I can summarize what it's like. If I was going to jump 10,000 feet without a parachute, I'd be horrified. Someone gives me a parachute, I go, oh, I'm now safe. I'm going to hit the ground at 10 miles an hour instead of 120. 
And my fear will be in direct proportion to the faith I have in the parachute. If I totally trust the parachute, I'm going to go, well, let's put it on. Okay, let's jump. I'll just jump. No fear. And it's the same with the Savior. If you put your faith in Christ, the amount of fear you have of death will dissipate or be in direct proportion to the amount of faith you have in the Savior. Does that make sense? A little bit. I wanted to make it big bit because this is your eternity. This is where you're going to spend forever. This is your life, the most precious possession you've got. And I don't want suicide to take you. It's taken 45,000 people a year in the U.S. commit suicide. And half a million end up in hospitals with attempted suicide. I don't want you to take that path. I want you to repent and trust or Christ. Or overdose. Or overdose. So you playing around with drugs? Mm, yeah. Man, come to your senses. Get before the Lord and say, God, forgive me, and ask him to transform your life, and he'll make you a brand new creature in Christ. Do you think I'm speaking the truth, Kevin? Yeah. You going to do something about this? You going to think about it seriously? Yeah. I'm trying to. You try to. I'm, I'm going to give you some literature that will help you. Kevin, thanks for being honest and patient with me. I really appreciate it. No problem.
Get Social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Truth be told, radio. Gotta go out with yes, yes, friends, and be I, Billy. Bye for now.